Good morning, Fellowship Greenville. So good to be with you in Auditorium 2 uh, today, and uh, welcome to those of you across the hall in Auditorium 1, and those that are joining us online. Take your Bible, paper or digital, and find your way to John chapter 20, and we'll get there in a few minutes. We're continuing our study through the Gospel of John. This is message number 60. We're getting close to the end. Of course, last week was Easter, and we looked at how Mary and Peter and John first encountered the empty tomb. We zeroed in on how John saw and believed. That is, he saw the evidence that Jesus had risen and believed that Jesus rose from the dead before he ever saw Jesus alive face to face. And we began talking about what faith in the risen Christ looks like. And this week, we're going to continue to look at the nature of faith here in verses 10 through 18. And we see how Jesus made his very first public appearance alive from the dead to Mary Magdalene outside the empty tomb. And, and, I, and I tell you, I, I, there's no better way to understand God connecting faith than to look at this case study of Mary Magdalene meeting Jesus on that first Easter morning. Now, by the way, this past week, I received a copy of Tim Keller's new book, uh, Hope in Times of Fear. And you notice the subtitle there, The Resurrection and the Meaning of Easter. But this isn't just a book about Easter. It's about how the resurrection shapes our understanding of Scripture, all of Scripture, and how it shapes our daily lives. And so it is definitely worth reading any time during the year. And in chapters 6 and 7 of the book, Keller talks about Jesus' post-resurrection appearances to Mary and John and Peter and then Thomas and the disciples and then Paul. And he talks about what we learn about faith uh, in the risen Christ from each one of these people. And I was greatly helped in preparing uh, this message and uh, by what he says about Mary here. And so it is very good and I encourage you to check it out. Now I'm, I wanna build to my first point like this. There's another book that I, that's really helped me over the years, and it's a book uh, on the gospel stories, especially of, of Mark and John, by a man named Reynolds Price. It's called The Three Gospels. And the late Reynolds Price was a professor of English at Duke University, and he was a, a fiction writer himself. And he says in his book, and this is especially true about the resurrection accounts, he basically says that any fiction writer reading the resurrection narratives would immediately see that these stories are not fiction. They're not myth, they're not fable, and they're not fiction. They're not legends. And he says one of the things that we noticed right away is that there are all sorts of unnecessary details that are in these stories that you wouldn't put in stories if you were making them up, if you were writing fiction. I mentioned one of them last week, um, that odd detail that John tells us three times that he beat Peter in a foot race to the empty tomb. I mean, if you were making up a story and you were trying to prove that Jesus is the Christ, you wouldn't put a detail uh, in a story like that. It serves no purpose. We see another example of it in John chapter 21 when, when the risen Jesus appears to the disciples on shore, they're out in the middle of uh, the Sea of Galilee, and they're fishing, and they're catching nothing, and Jesus tells them where to cast their nets, and they have this great catch of fish. And John says that they caught 153 fish. 
not 152, not 154, but 153. So, so, okay, so what? Well, there's no reason to put a detail in the story like that unless you were an eyewitness to it. Now, Price also talks about how there are many, many things in these stories that would never have entered the imagination of an ancient fiction writer because fiction writers, no matter how imaginative they are, ancient fiction writers, base what they're writing on on past experience and they can project and they can extend and they can exaggerate, but to some degree they have to work from past experience. And Reynolds Price says there are things in these stories that no one had ever seen or thought of before, things that couldn't have, have even been imagined in his day. And Price quotes C.S. Lewis, another professor of English literature, who says this about the gospel accounts of the resurrection of Jesus. Lewis says, I've been reading poems and romances and vision literature and legends and myths all my life. I know what they're like, and I know that not a one of them is like this. Of this text, there are only two possible views. Either this is a report of what actually happened, or else some unknown writer in the second century without known predecessors or successors, suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic, realistic narrative. If it is untrue, it must be narrative of that kind, and the reader who doesn't see this simply does not know how to read. And Price says, none of the other active world religions says anything remotely similar or comparable to this. There is likewise no parallel in the theologies of John's contemporaries, the dead myths of Greece or Rome, with their demigods and deified bureaucrats. He says John is giving us a brand new thing. So, okay, so what's my point? My point is there is an eyewitness voice underneath John's resurrection story. There's always somebody saying what Mary says down in verse 18, I have seen the Lord. And that's why John introduces his first letter, 1 John 1 and 2, like this. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim to you concerning Jesus, the word of life. Now, interestingly enough, the word for seen here in 1 John 1 is a different Greek word than the three Greek words for see to see that we looked at last week. Here in 1 John, the word for see is arao, and it means to see face to face, which, by the way, is the same one Mary uses down in verse 18 when she says to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. Now, John is an eyewitness, but he wasn't an eyewitness to what we're gonna read here that we learn from Mary Magdalene when she meets Jesus there. He wasn't there to see and hear Mary's interaction with Jesus, but he wrote down what she saw and heard because he was in the room when she told the disciples what had happened. So we're in John chapter 20, verse 10, and I'm gonna read the scripture here, but I'm gonna change it just a little bit because I wanna show you that it doesn't take much to change this from a third-person report to a first-person personal testimony. Listen to it as Mary would have told it uh, to the disciples later on that day. When Peter and John went back to their uh, homes, I stayed behind. I stood weeping outside the tomb, and as I wept, I stooped 
to look into the tomb, and I saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to me, woman, why are you weeping? And I said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. Having said this, I turned around and I saw Jesus standing there, but I didn't know it was Jesus. And Jesus said to me, woman, why are you weeping? Who are you looking for? And I, I, I thought he was the gardener. And I said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to me, Mary. And I turned and said to him, my teacher. And I hugged him, and I, I didn't want to let him go. And Jesus said to me, don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. And I'm here to tell you, I have seen the Lord. Now that makes a little bit of difference, doesn't it? It kind of just pops when you hear, like this is what it would have sounded like if you'd heard it from Mary's own mouth. My point is, if you don't see that these stories are claiming to be believable eyewitnesses accounts, I have seen the Lord, then you're doing violence to the purpose of the writers. Price, Reynolds Price says, John insists we take the resurrection story as a historical event, not as a symbol, but a hard, palpable, uh, edible event that aims at every human heart. In other words, he's saying, if you say, well, I don't really take the Bible literally. I read these stories like spiritual stories that have spiritual lessons, like there's always hope after disaster, and there's always spring after winter, and there's, there's new life after COVID, you know, which I'm sure a lot of mainline uh, denomination preachers were preaching on Easter this year. But, but, but if you say that, I, you know, you're, you're, this is this stuff about Jesus rising from the dead. No, 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 I don't believe that. I think they're spiritual stories. Well, with all due respect, I'd like to say on behalf of the gospel writers that that's just not fair. The gospel writers are saying, we know that what we're putting in these narratives are claims that no other religion even begins to make. We know that what we're claiming is absolutely outrageous to the people who read it, but we're saying we really did see Jesus alive from the dead. We have seen the Lord. We heard him, and we know that sounds crazy, but it's true. So call us liars if you want, but don't say we made it all up to teach people spiritual lessons. And Reynolds Price ends by saying, if 2,000 years of pious handling had not dimmed our understanding that these stories demand John's gospel would still be seen as the burning outrage that it continues to be. It's either a work of madness or a blinding revelation. The acts it portrays, the claims it advances, the demands that, and it, it demands that we make a hard choice. If we take the gospel writer seriously, we must finally ask the question he thrusts so flagrantly toward us, does he bring us life-transforming truth, or is this one gifted lunatic's tale of another lunatic wilder than he? John's saying, receive what I have written as truth or reject it as lies, but don't take what I've written and spiritualize it. It's true or false, but it's not spiritual fiction. Now, all that leads to my first point about faith, and that is this, that faith rests on truth that faith rests on truth. 
In other words, the gospel writers are saying, if you do not believe that the resurrection story of Jesus is eyewitness historical fact, then your faith in Jesus is not God-connecting faith. Because you see, a lot of people today, they say, well, hey, look, if Christianity helps you, if it works for you, if it changes you, that's fine. Then it's true for you. No, 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 no. Christianity actually says it's the other way around. Don't say if it helps you, if it works for you, if it changes you, then it's true for you. No, only if it's true, only if it's really, really true will it help you and work for you and change you. I mean, think about it. How can you be totally sure that when you look at all the horrible stuff that's been happening for the last 18 months, the stuff that's been happening to you and your family and in your life and the stuff out there in the world, how can you not just hope but be absolutely sure that someday God is gonna come and put it all right? How can you be absolutely sure? And I don't, I don't mean just hope so. I mean how can you be absolutely sure that in spite of, of your failures and your shortcomings, how can you be sure that God loves you and will never, ever let you go? How can you not just hope but be sure? How can you be sure that when you face death, it's not the end? How can you be absolutely sure that you're gonna be raised from the dead? How can you look at death and not even flinch. Only if you know that Jesus lives, you will know. The only way you can be sure of these things and be able to face life in this broken world is if you know that what Mary saw and heard was the truth, was real. So don't say, well, if it works for you, then it's true for you. No, 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 no. Only if it's true. Only if it really happened. Only if she really saw him. Only if he called her by name. Only if that happened can you face death. Only then can you face your failed failures. Only then can you face an uncertain future. In fact, don't say, don't, don't even ask, is Christianity exciting? Is it relevant? Will it meet my needs? No, no, no. Ask if it's true. And if it's true, only then will it meet your needs. And if it's not true, then who cares? Faith rests on the truth of scripture, that's first. Now, let me build to my second point. The combined gospel accounts of the resurrection show us that the followers of Jesus were in a state of confusion and chaos on the morning of his resurrection. They're scrambling around and they're trying to piece together random bits of information. They're trying to make sense of what someone saw and another person heard and they're hiding out in the room, they're very afraid. And after seeing the empty tomb and the mystifying hollow cocoon of Jesus' grave clothes, Peter and John go home reasonably certain that Jesus had risen from the dead, but Mary stayed behind weeping, overcome with sadness and grief. And when she looked into the empty tomb to try to see what Peter and John saw, she saw two angels one at both ends of the stone slab where Jesus', was, Jesus body was placed. And, and they say to her, woman, why are you crying? Of course, they knew uh, there was no reason to cry since Jesus was alive from the dead. But Mary, like we said last week, Mary had no expectation that Jesus would rise from the dead. 
Mary's only explanation that made any kind of logical sense to her was, I'm crying because someone stole the body of Jesus and I don't know where they've taken him. Now, ironically, Jesus was standing right behind her in plain sight. He's watching her. He's listening to the conversation uh, that she's having with the angels. And when she turns around, she looks at him with a quick glance. But through tears, she doesn't recognize him. She thinks he's the caretaker of the garden. All right, so push pause. And now let's hit rewind and let's dig a little deeper. Who is Mary Magdalene? I mean, what do we know about her? Well, in Luke 8, we're told that she was a part of Jesus' ministry team. Mary Magdalene uh, and a group of other women traveled with Jesus and the 12 disciples, and they supported Jesus' ministry uh, financially out of their pocketbooks, and she and some other women traveled with Jesus, and so they were faithful followers of Jesus. We're also told in Luke chapter 8 that Jesus had cast seven demons out of Mary Magdalene. In other words, you know, the number seven, perfect number, to, number for total, she was totally possessed by demons, many of them, which in the eyes of normal people of that day would have seen her as a total basket case or a mental patient. Now, we, we know from her name where she came from. She is called Mary the Magdalene. Mary Magdalene, Magdalene is not her last name. It's where she was from, like Jesus Jesus was called the Nazarene because he was from Nazareth. Mary is called Magdalene because she was from Magdala, which is on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. And uh, if we ever get to go to Israel and you go with us, we'll go to Magdala. I think, I think they're, uh, if I remember correctly, they've dug up an old fishing boat that actually came from the time of Jesus. It's really cool. I remember seeing it. I'm pretty sure it was in Magdala, but we'll see it again. But anyway, it was a resort city on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, kind of an Acapulco sort of place, a place of great luxury and great corruption and immorality. So it would not have been a compliment to say, to call anyone a Magdalene. Now, there's a very, very early ancient tradition in the church that Mary was also a prostitute, and that would certainly fit with what, what we know about her as a person. She was, had been demon-possessed, and uh, where she was from was a place of great corruption. What we do know for sure, though, is that Mary came from an incredibly broken back, background. Her life was a wreck. Uh, she was a broken person, and Jesus had put her back together. Now, until you engage your imagination and understanding that Mary is a person who, at this point, has literally lost everything, you really can't understand these verses. Because Mary had been traumatized by seeing Jesus brutally crucified, and now she believes that somebody has stolen his body. And she's not hysterical. She has not completely lost it, but with her eyes full of tears and her heart full of sorrow and worry and grief and indignation, she, she doesn't see who and what is right in front of her. I mean, she's looked in the tomb and she sees angels and in the Bible, when most people see angels, they fall down, put their face on the ground, and they're scared to death. Mary doesn't have that reaction. She sees two angels dressed in white. This is her own testimony. She must have put it together later. I don't know. She's trying to figure out who they are and what's going on, but nothing makes sense to her except that someone has stolen the body. 
Mary misses all the clues. In fact, you remember the movie Clueless? That's, that could be the title of this, this section right here. Mary's Clueless. Mary had several sets of clues, incredibly strong sets of clues. She missed them all. Like, first of all, there was the empty tomb and the grave clothes. That's a clue that Jesus had risen from the dead. It's a pretty major clue. But not only does that not seem to phase her, not only does she, she not get that, but she looks inside and she sees these two angels. They ask her, woman, why are you crying? She says, I don't know where they put him. The angels are the second set of clues that Jesus has risen from the dead, but she missed that too. Then, of course, last of all, at, at this, she turns around and she sees Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize it was Jesus. And Jesus asked her the same question the angels just asked her. Woman, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? She still doesn't get it. She thinks that Jesus is the gardener. The, the, the fact is Mary blows right through three sets of clues that are kind of like stop signs, and she just barrels through the stop sign. Like, stop, he's risen. She doesn't get it. Stop, he's risen. Three times she completely misses it because she believes in Jesus in general, but she, has not, she does not yet believe the gospel, which is that Jesus had to die and pay for sins and rise from the dead proving that he had done so. But she doesn't understand. She doesn't believe it's possible, even though that Jesus had told them, told her, and she heard this when she was walking with those disciples. He had said over and over towards the end of his ministry that he had to suffer and die, but on the, th on the third day he would rise from the dead. Nobody believed that. Mary didn't believe that. They couldn't make sense of it. As far as Mary was concerned, there was only one thing that was important, that is the body has to be around here somewhere. Now, there's something very important here that you need to understand, and this is my second po point. Apart from God's grace, no one will ever come to faith in Jesus. So faith rests in truth, and second, faith comes by grace. Faith comes by grace, and Mary is the perfect case study for this great truth that runs all through the Bible. Now, why do I say that? Well, look at her. In some ways, if we put it in modern turn, terms, she's a spiritual seeker. I mean, she's weeping. She's looking for Jesus. She won't go home. She won't give up until she finds him. She's even gonna take on the gardener. She says, I don't care if you took the body or not. Just give it to him. Give him to me. So, yeah, you could say she's really seeking but guess what? Unless Jesus breaks in, she's never going to find him. You know why? She's searching and searching and searching for Jesus, and she's not going to find him until he shows himself to her because she's searching for a Jesus that doesn't exist. She, she knows Jesus, but not the real Jesus, as I said last week, was true of Peter and John. So if Jesus sits back and he waits for her to figure it out, he'll wait forever because she's never gonna see it because she has blinders on. As loving as she is, as passionate as she is, as tenacious as she is, as much as she loves Jesus, she's completely blind. Now think about it. Right now, she thinks she's in the middle of a disaster. But there are angels in front of her and Jesus is standing behind her. Is she in the middle of a disaster? No, no, but she, 
She's about to be made one of the most famous people in the history of the world, and she feels abandoned. And when she actually sees Jesus, she thinks he's one of, one of the enemies. Have you taken his body? Give him to me. She's passionate, she loves Jesus, but she's absolutely spiritually blind to what's actually happened. She feels like God's abandoned her, she feels like her faith has been misplaced, but she loves Jesus, but she has no idea that God is working in ways beyond her imagination. She feels like it's the end of the world, but it's not. Now by the way, sidebar, do you feel like you're living in the middle of a disaster? You got angels all around you every single day. You got Jesus living inside you. He's before you and behind you and beside you and above you and beneath you. You're completely encircled in the Father's care. So are you really in the middle of a disaster? Or could it be that God is doing something far beyond what we can imagine and there may be darkness like there was in Mary's life. There may be darkness there, but God is working something equally as transforming for us as, as the resurrection was for her. Now, think back to Mary. I, I, love, I love the way Jesus comes after her. I love the way he breaks in. Again, if he just sat back and said, well, you're a spiritual searcher, so seek and ye shall find, no, as long as you work hard enough and as long as you search hard enough, you'll eventually figure it out and find me. No, 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 that's not the way it works. It's not salvation by works. It's not salvation by our finding him. It's salvation by him finding us, him coming to us. He, he comes after her so gently and so affectionately. I love it when he says, woman, why are you crying? It's the, again, the same question that the angels ask. Woman, why are you crying? It reminds me of what Wendy said about the not quite yet canceled Peter Pan when she said, boy, why are you crying? Boy, why are you crying? In other words, this is a tender moment. And then he says, who are you looking for? Who are you looking for? Don't you think that had like a double meaning? I mean, I mean Jesus is saying, Mary, you love me and you're looking for me, but your understanding of me is way too small. You're not really looking for the real me, you're looking for a Jesus that does not exist. So he finally breaks in, and notice, and notice, it didn't happen this way. I got this from Keller. Keller says, Mary didn't recognize him and say, teacher, and then Jesus said, hi Mary. It was the other way around. No, Jesus calls to her, Mary, and then she recognizes him and she says, my teacher. He calls to her, he breaks in on her, he opens her eyes. See, it, salvation always comes by grace as the, as the old hymn uh, puts it, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. I can only see when grace opens my eyes to see. That's what's so amazing about grace. I can only see when he calls me by name. I mean, isn't this a great way for Jesus to teach us that salvation is only by grace? 
It's not by works, by, it's by his works, not ours. It's not by what we do, it's what he has done for us on the cross. It's not us trying to find him, it's him calling to us by name. And what better way to get across the fact that salvation is by grace than to choose Mary as the very first member of his church and the very first missionary? Again, now, think back to our first point about faith resting on truth. If you were making up a story to convince people, try to persuade people that Jesus was something special, the Son of God who came from heaven to die for our sins, if you're trying to make up a story like that, you would not use Mary as the, as the first evangelist. I mean, the, the simple fact is that of all the people in the world, uh, of all the people Jesus could have appeared to, he called her. She was the first one to hear, the first one to see, and for one brief shining moment, she was the whole church. The, the, the only evangelist, the only missionary, the only person who knew the truth and could share the truth with others. Now, do you think that was an accident? I mean, think, who came to the empty tomb that morning? Well, Mary came, Peter came, John came. They were all there together at one point, and then Peter and John left, and it was just Mary. And Jesus did not show himself until it was just Mary. That was deliberate. It was intentional. It wasn't an accident. And think, he chose a woman, not a man, which in that culture you just didn't do because women were not believable witnesses in a court of law. He chooses a woman, not a man. He chose a reformed prostitute, a mental patient, not a pillar of the community, he chose a commoner, not a religious leader. Why would he do that? Why Mary? Well, the answer is there's no better way to teach us about grace. Mary was on the outside of every single inside-outside category the world had at that time. She was a woman, not a man. She was poor, not middle class. She had been deranged, not sane. She was immoral, not moral. She's on the outside of everything. But this is the gospel. The gospel is that God's salvation does not come on the basis of merit. It does not come on the basis of pedigree. It does not come on the basis of race, class, gender, or pecking order. What's the gospel? The gospel is the unrighteous are in and the self-righteous are out. That the humble are in and the proud are out. The gospel is not that you give God a perfect record and he accepts you, but that Jesus gives you his perfect record and God accepts you. This is what Jesus is helping us see. He chooses the Marys so we who are non-Marys will get it and so will other Marys. You see that? He chooses the Marys so that not only will other Marys see it, that is possible, but the non-Marys will finally get it. Do you get it? Jesus deliberately, one more time, he deliberately chooses a woman, not a man, in a patriarchal society. He chooses a former prostitute who had been possessed by unclean spirits and not a moral upstanding church member. How much clearer could he be in saying that my salvation is by grace? It's for everyone. It doesn't matter what your past was. It doesn't matter what your background was. Your record doesn't matter. Your gender doesn't matter. Your social status doesn't ma matter. Salvation, the salvation we have in Christ is by absolute sheer grace and even our faith comes by grace. Now, we see this 
whole idea about faith comes by grace in another place in the passage when Jesus says to Mary, go tell my who? My brothers. My brothers. Now, why does he say, why doesn't he say go tell those miserable deserters? Go tell those miserable deniers. You tell them I'm coming to tell them that hell's coming with me. That's from Wyatt Earp in one of my favorite movies of all time, Tombstone. Why didn't Jesus do that? Well, no, he says, go tell my brothers. My brothers. At first he called his disciples servants, then he calls them friends, and now he calls them my brothers. He's saying, because of what I have done, we're in the same family. Because of what I've done, my father is your father. And my God is your God. You see that? You have to remember that the disciples, they were proud and arrogant. When Mary tells them that she has seen the Lord, Luke tells us that they thought she was crazy, that this was like an old wives' tale. They were proud and arrogant. Mary was humble, and that's important. And yet, Jesus is not bigoted against bigots. He's not self-righteous with the self-righteous. Look, if you feel like you're an open-minded person, but you hate the bigots and the traditionally-minded people, or if you feel like you're virtuous because you're traditional and moral, but you hate immoral people, then either way, you don't understand that your faith has come to you by grace. It's not based on your goodness or your good record. Faith rests on truth. Faith comes through grace. And faith, number three, works through love. It expresses itself through love. Now, one of the things that, about Mary is that she really did love Jesus. I'm gonna say it, she loved them more than anybody else. Now, how can I say that? Because think about it. From the beginning of this chapter, we see that she was the only one who came to the tomb on her own accord on the third day. She's the only one who stayed there. She's not gonna go away till she finds Jesus' body. She's even willing to take on one of the grave robbers because she thinks the gardener is in cahoots with the grave robbers, and she's like, give him to me. I mean, that's love. And notice at the very end of the story, Jesus has to tell her, don't hold me so tightly. Don't keep clinging to me. Now, some translations, like the old King James translate this, don't touch me, implying that Jesus is saying, don't touch me, I'm holy. I'm like the burning bush. I'm like Mount Sinai, so don't touch me. But one, that's not actually how the word is not translated like that. It's stop clinging to me. But it can't be true because of the context, because in just a, bit, a little bit later in the same chapter, he's gonna say to Thomas, touch me. Go ahead, put your finger in the hole in my side. If that'll help you believe. So, so it, it can't be what he means. He's actually saying, you don't have to hold on to me so tight. I think it's kind of funny. Like he's just like squeezing her, like he's pinching her or something. And it's because as soon as Mary realizes that Jesus is alive from the dead, she, she grabs hold of him and she's holding him like a vice. She wants to hold on to him so she doesn't lose him again. And basically, Jesus is saying, don't hold on to me so tightly. I'm not going back to the Father just yet. 
But he tells his disciples he is going, but he's got, as you know, if you know the story, there's going to be a space in there where he's going to keep meeting with his disciples. Clearly, this woman loves Jesus, and she doesn't want to let him go. Now, the question is, where does love like that come from? i tell you where it comes from. It comes because she understands grace. Like, this is not a hysterical woman. This is a woman who's, who's iron. She is relentless. She is tenacious. This is a woman who is laser-focused. She's going to get through anything. Angels, schmangles, where's my Lord? Gardeners, I know you took him. Give him to me. How did she get like this? Where does love like this come from? Well, Jesus says it's simple arithmetic. In, in Luke chapter 7, Jesus says, the one who is forgiven much loves much. The one who's forgiven much loves much. It's simple arithmetic. She knew she was a sinner. She knew the depth of her sin. She knew she was broken. She knew how big her debt was. She knew it. And despite all that, Jesus had called her to himself and, and said, you can be a child of God, which had to have blown her mind. She loved much because she was forgiven much. And what we see here is Mary, this is, uh, it, what we see in Mary is loving commitment born of grace. Loving commitment born of grace. Again, this is the reason that the Marys are chosen. This is the reason Marys are used. It's people who know they're sinners, who know the depth of their sin, who love like this. Now, some of us were raised in good Christian homes. Some of us were raised in in good churches, some of us grew up knowing Jesus from an early age, and some of us know our Bibles backwards and forwards, and that's a good thing. But with some, there's very little joy in the relationship with Jesus, very little true, deep devotion, passion for Jesus. You know why? It's because you don't really know you're a sinner. Oh, you know it like Romans 3, 23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You know it doctrinally, but you don't really know it on a heart level. You don't know it personally. You don't understand that it took as much grace, as much of Jesus' shed blood to forgive your sin as it did to forgive Mary's sin and other people like her's sin. Your debt is equal to hers, but you don't know it. But the Marys of the world, people who were addicted to sex and inner demons and drugs and alcohol, people who remember what it was like to be lost in the darkness of sin, they know. I mean, do you know the depth of your sin? Do you know what a slave you are to achievement, to position, to status, to comfort? to being liked and accepted by people who are important to you, maybe in some cases to your own self-perceived moral goodness. Look, until you see yourself as, as sinful as Mary saw herself, you're not gonna understand grace. You're not gonna, you're not gonna feel and experience the depth of Jesus' love for you, and you're not gonna be able to express this kind of love for him. Now, I hear you. I mean, believe me, I hear you. You're thinking, but I'm not a prostitute. I'm not immoral. I never have been. I mean, I've never been a crazy demon-possessed person. I get that. 
I, neither have I. I. I'm in the same boat as you. I mean, sometimes it's easy for me to look at some people and I'm tempted to think, well, I'm not perfect, but at least I'm better than he is, or at least I'm better than she is. But in God's eyes, that's not true. That's self-righteousness, that's arrogance, that's pride. What I'm saying is, it's the Marys of the world or the people who know they're no different from the Marys of the world who have this depth of love and commitment that is born of grace. By the way, a sideways application here is this. Since we have all been saved by grace through faith, just like Mary, it means we really need to be ruthless in getting rid of any snobbery or pride or self-perceived moral superiority. We need to get the snobbery out. We need to throw it on the ground and stomp on it and kill it. Faith works through love. Faith expresses itself through love, but faith cannot work through love if it has not been shaped by grace. And so if you look down your nose at your brothers and sisters who are beneath you in achievement or beneath you in education or beneath you in social status or beneath you in economic status, beneath you in morality, if you look down your nose at people like that, you're not reading your Bible. You're not really seeing Jesus for who he is. You're not really understanding the depth of your sin. We've got to get snobbery out. We gotta get rid of self-righteousness. Throw it to the ground, stomp on it every single day. Any little hint of it, confess it immediately. Think of Mary. Tim Keller, at the end of his little section on Mary, puts it about as well as it could be said. He says, to the degree you understand your need for grace, to that degree faith explodes in your life in the form of love. Isn't that good? To the degree you understand your need for grace, to that degree faith explodes in your life in the form of love. Galatians 5, 6 says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but all that matters is faith working through love. Meaning, what's all that circumcision talking about? Meaning your background means nothing. Your identity, your past identity, good or bad, doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is faith that has come through grace expressing itself through love. Now, I wonder, do you have that kind of God-connecting faith? Like if you were to measure your faith against what Mary teaches us about faith, where do you come up short? Is your faith a faith that holds fast to the truth of Scripture, all Scripture? Is your faith a faith that you know has come to you by grace and not by your own self-perceived goodness? Is your faith a faith that expresses itself through a tenacious love for God and a tender love for other people? especially people who are very, very much different from you? Do you have faith like this? 
If not, I just encourage you to talk to God about it. Come to God, come to Jesus and say, Lord, I do believe. Help me in my unbelief. I do have faith, but there's gaps in my understanding of the kind of faith you want me to have. Help fill those gaps. Lord, I believe, help me in my unbelief. Faith rests in truth. Faith comes by grace. Faith expresses itself in love. Come, Holy Spirit, give me, give us all this kind of God-connecting faith. And I ask this in Jesus' precious name, amen.